and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and with me today is someone you might all remember. I'm very, very happy right now to say welcome back to the podcast, Yoke Boy. Hey guys, I'm so glad to be back. This is actually the first time Lady Gwyn and I have recorded even on the same continent, and now we're in the same room. It's all very exciting, and we're sure that this move can only mean good things for Radio Westeros going forward. Yes, for sure, and obviously I'm delighted to have you back, and I hope all you listeners are as well. Once again, we want to thank all of you for bearing with us through this process, and now we can face the new year and whatever 2020 might bring us by getting things back to normal around here. That's right. We have lots of great things planned for the upcoming year, and we're looking forward to sharing them with you. And now, before we begin with the episode preview, we want to give thanks, as always, to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Maltude, Pepper, Whitney, Kelly, Laura, Daniel, John Wagarian, and Sister Winter. Many thanks to you all, and if you're interested in becoming a patron, head on over to patreon.com slash radiowesteros to check out our campaign, where patrons have access to exclusive episodes, early ad-free access to regular episodes, and customizable shout-outs, among other perks. Your support helps us keep Radio Westeros going. Yes, it does, and thank you all for that support. And now, in today's episode, we'll be considering heroism in A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll begin by considering what exactly a hero is, what Georgia said on the matter, and how he's approached the theme in A Song of Ice and Fire. Then we'll take a good look at the hero's journey. The monomyth, as it's called, is never far away from discussions on fantasy literature. Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, popularized the concept, so we'll walk through it and distill what the hero's journey is and highlight where it shows up in A Song of Ice and Fire. And next, we're going to look at mentoring in A Song of Ice and Fire, and see how George makes three popular characters into formidable heroes. But not all heroes fare well in this saga. Afterwards, we'll look at a subversion of a heroic arc, as Quentin the Dornish Dreamer learns the hard truth about adventure in George's world. And George has said that each character is the hero of their own story that gives us a lot of heroes. And we'll be looking at different types of hero found in literature and pop culture and relating them to our point of view characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. You want to know about Byronic heroes, redemptive heroes, and anti-heroes and where they arise in the story? Want to hear us compare Harry Potter, Darth Vader, Michael Corleone, and many other pop culture icons to characters in A Song of Ice and Fire? Well, stay tuned for this bonanza section on heroic archetypes. An epic pseudo-advert will complete the show today, and so let's get started with our look at heroes in A Song of Ice and Fire. I look for ways to make my characters real and to make them human. Characters who have good and bad, noble and selfish, well mixed in their natures. Yes, I do certainly want people to think about the characters and not just react with a knee-jerk. 
I read too much fiction myself in which you encounter characters who are very stereotyped. They're heroic hero and dastardly villain, and they're completely black or completely white. That's boring, so far as I'm concerned. That's also unreal. If you look at real human history, even the darkest villains had some good things about them. Perhaps they were courageous, or perhaps they were occasionally compassionate to an enemy. Even our greatest heroes had weaknesses and flaws. George R. R. Martin The word hero can have numerous definitions, and might mean something slightly different to all of us. But a pertinent definition offered by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is thus, the principal character in a literary or dramatic work. But perhaps the viewpoint we should be considering within today's discussion of heroes in A Song of Ice and Fire is that of George R.R. Martin. We have a deep and exploratory discussion lined up about what can be gleaned about George's outlook from the many pages of his unfolding saga. But first we can consider an even more direct source, the unfiltered word of the author himself. George has partaken in many interviews over the years, and the theme of heroism has come up frequently, giving us valuable insight into his way of thinking. And it turns out that his commentary on heroes began a long time before A Song of Ice and Fire was ever conceived. In fact, George's first ever writing sale was for his short story entitled The Hero. It was written in the late 60s, and Galaxy Magazine bought and published it in 1971, when George was in his early 20s. It was a commentary on war, colonization, and heroes. So as early as this, we see evidence of George pondering a lot of the same themes and issues he's still writing about in A Song of Ice and Fire today. Since then, George has had a lot longer to think about war and heroes and their place in the world. George's more recent correspondences regarding heroes are sharp and concise, often repeating the same sentiments from interview to interview, as if his viewpoint has truly solidified. And when George discusses heroes, it's clear that he sees heroism as a theme to be reflected upon, rather than just an archetype to pull characters from. He wants to send a message about the true nature of heroism and villainy as he sees it, by exploring the theme throughout the many disparate points of view found in A Song of Ice and Fire. So our first consideration should be how George treats characters in general, which will be directly relatable to his ethos for writing heroes. One of George's oft-repeated mantras regarding his character writing is that he likes them to be morally grey. There might be exceptions we can all think of, some true and unambiguous monsters, for instance, but on the whole, and especially with point-of-view characters, there is a greyness weaved through them. George says that he, quote, prefers to write grey characters because in real life people are complex. No one is pure evil or pure good. Regarding notions of good and bad, he says that he likes to blur the line and that he thinks real human beings are very grey. They have good and bad mixed up in them. So George is essentially citing real life as the impetus for his grey character writing. 
As everybody knows, he's read a lot of history, giving him an overview of humanity and the deeds done both good and ill. He's also lived a life himself, no doubt witnessing the greyness in the people around him and in himself as well. There's a moral compass in all of us, and sometimes navigation through life is not straightforward. George once cited the story of a soldier to explain this. He says, The soldier heroically saves his friends' lives, but then goes home and beats his wife. Which is he? Hero or villain? And George concluded that the soldier was both, and that neither act cancels out the other. So George was influenced by the theatre of real life to some extent. And of course, there's then the large volume of fantasy stories he's consumed in his lifetime. The comic books, movies, novels, and so forth. Here he seems to have taken exception to an intellectual dishonesty he perceives in fantasy storytelling, and turned it into an inspiration to write truthful characters. He says... There is an inherent dishonesty to the sort of fantasy that too many people have done, where there is a giant war that rips the world apart, but no one that we know is ever really seriously inconvenienced by this. You see the devastated villages where unnamed peasants have lived, and they're all dead, but the heroes just breeze through, killing people at every hand and surviving those dire situations. There's a falsehood to that that troubles me. A writer can choose not to write about war. You don't have to write about war if that's not a subject that interests you or if you find it too brutal. But if you are going to write about war, I think you need to tell the truth about it. And the truth is that people die, and people die in ugly ways, and even some of the good guys die, even people who are loved. So ultimately, George seems to be driven to impart a truthfulness in his writing that not only fits his worldview, but also lends itself to a real and believable world capable of touching us deeply. The moral ambiguity of many of his lead characters speak to a writer who is both tired of cliched fantasy and is also a proponent of William Faulkner's assertion that the only matter worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. When evaluating George's treatment of heroes, his view of character greyness is carried into the discussion. Heroes are good and villains are bad, right? Well, according to George, it's often difficult to say what good and bad actually is. As he so succinctly puts it, in real life, the hardest aspect of the battle between good and evil is determining which is which. And of course, this is a discussion that touches all of us and is one that will be debated in philosophy lecture halls until the end of time. It's also an aspect central to George's heroes, With the POV structure, we can see characters exploring this conundrum for themselves. We might even relate to their struggles, live vicariously and refine our own opinions on certain issues. And this could be the ultimate goal for George. He says, We all think we're heroes. We all think we're good guys. We have our rationalisations when we do bad things. Well, I had no choice, or it's the best of several bad alternatives, or no, it was actually good because God told me to do so, or I had to do it for my family. 
We all have rationalisations for why we do shitty things or selfish things or cruel things. So when I'm writing from the viewpoint of one of my characters who has done these things, I try to have that in my head. He also believes that history supports his notion of a blurred line between good and evil, saying, If you look at real human history, even the darkest villains had some good things about them. Perhaps they were courageous, or perhaps they were occasionally compassionate to an enemy. Even our greatest heroes had weaknesses and flaws. Here, George is not apologizing for the dark deeds of history's villains. Rather, he's interested in their human truth, that they were born into our world and believed in their hearts, however misguidedly, that they were acting for some force of good. And in George's world, even the most beloved hero is capable of committing an evil act in certain circumstances. Likewise, a villain might show a heroic streak we might not have expected, as George outlines in this quote. Someone once said that the villain is the hero of the other side. I wanted to reflect that. So many fantasies have villains who are cardboard cutouts. Lord Blackness or King Evil or the Monstrous One or some such. Fair. George typically talks about fantasy cliches with some amount of disdain, but he's not seeking to back away from studying heroes and villains or good versus evil in his own work. He just wants to view it all through a different lens. He says, The battle between good and evil is a legitimate theme for fantasy, or any work of fiction for that matter. But in real life, that battle is fought chiefly in the individual human heart. Too many contemporary fantasies take the easy way out by externalizing the struggle, so the heroic protagonist need only smite the evil minions of the dark power to win the day. And you can tell the evil minions, because they're inevitably ugly and they all wear black. I wanted to stand much of that on its head. We can wonder if George's choice of a multi-viewpoint POV structure, which in some ways is very restrictive was chiefly designed in order to witness closely this internal battle our heroes engage in, meaning George's principal artistic concern was the facilitation of empathy and pathos to create formidable bonds between the audience and the characters. George often mentions realness and verisimilitude, but it's not only the POV structure that is creating those illusions. In the plot itself, George treats the POV characters with realness as he sees it. One of the major surprises of the opening book was Ned Stark's death. One of the fantasy cliches George wanted to challenge was the invincible hero, and he brought a sword down on that one rather quickly. He says, I killed Ned because everybody thinks he's the hero and that, sure, he's going to get into trouble, but then he'll somehow get out of it. The next predictable thing is to think his eldest son is going to rise up and avenge his father, and everybody is going to expect that. So immediately, killing Rob became the next thing I had to do. So, George made the decision to kill the apparent central hero to teach the audience that nobody is safe. 
He did the same with Viserys, who, in spite of not having a point of view, appeared to be one of the story's villains. It created an even playing field. Heroes and villains will die when you're not expecting it, because death is real, and so George's world felt real. He wants us to feel that nobody is protected by their destiny, and says that that generic convention was one he didn't want in his story. So we can see that George is doing all he can to challenge the traditional moulds of heroes and villains, making morality a confusing sliding scale of multiple dimensions, much as it is in life, and encouraging a plot that is going to make moral dilemmas and cognitive dissonance come to the fore for characters and readers alike. Furthermore, George has even challenged himself, breaking his own mould of writing lead characters that were often loners. With the Starks, who he identifies as heroes, he has chosen a family living in a home to begin his story. He says, I wanted to do a book about a family. I've written a lot of novels and I realise that for the most part, the heroes of those novels, the protagonists are always loners. They're young people who are unattached or they are older people who have never made attachments. Abner Marsh from Fever Dream is a loner. Dirk Talarian in Dying of the Light is a loner. So I thought it would be interesting to tackle a family unit for once. However, Starks aren't the only heroes, as George likes to point out. The issue is more philosophical than that. He says... Anyone is the hero of their own story, and I have more than a dozen viewpoint characters, and they all are heroes. So George's world is full of heroes, and we're being invited to read, relate, or be repulsed by them as their stories interweave. There is a well-considered selection of heroes in evidence, and even our favorites might do questionable things that keep us awake at night. Perhaps some of us are lying there wondering, what exactly is a hero anyway? Given how close fans feel to this cast of heroes and the endless debates raging in fan forums about the morality of these characters, it just might be that George has us exactly where he wants us. In this episode, we'll be talking a lot more about the heroes of A Song of Ice and Fire, what defines them and what different types of heroes are evident. But next, we're going to talk about how heroes are made – And we'll begin with a discussion on the hero's journey in A Song of Ice and Fire. The hero's journey is something often mentioned in discussions on these books. But what exactly does it mean and what's it got to do with A Song of Ice and Fire? Stay tuned to find out. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Joseph Campbell There are many recognisable literary archetypes in A Song of Ice and Fire. Archetypes are said to come from a universal human truth. 
our subconscious recognises them and writers can use their familiarity to create stories around them. The archetype most central to today's discussion is the hero's journey, a supposed cycle for the story of heroic characters evident in tales across borders, languages and cultures. Experts have been analysing stories for thousands of years. After all, it was the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle who underlined the three-act structure that endures today, concluding that the structure worked because every human action had a beginning, middle, and an end, and so it was innate in us. Interest in analytical comparisons between heroes began in the late 1800s as anthropologist Edward Tyler saw patterns and plots. This was in an epoch of Freudian psychoanalysis with new ways of thinking about the subconscious, life, and art. Other academics continued to build on Tyler's work until Joseph Campbell popularized the field. Professor Campbell was a comparative mythologist studying folklore and stories across cultures. In 1949, he released the Hero with a Thousand Faces, which described the journey of a universal hero. He called this journey the monomyth. Despite criticism of being broad, general, and overwrought, at the heart of this analysis there is value. Not only can we see the monomyth, however vaguely, in The Hobbit and The Chronicles of Narnia, for instance, preceding Campbell's book, But then writers came to credit Campbell in more recent history. George Lucas turned Hollywood onto the monomyth when he cited Campbell's observations as being integral to the writing of Star Wars. In the 90s blockbuster The Matrix, Neo's journey resembles the cycle. The study of heroes shifted from myth analysis to myth creation. What makes the archetype, or set of archetypes, so interesting to A Song of Ice and Fire fans is that given its centering around a journey, Campbell's cycle works particularly well with adventure characters. As someone who knows how to create an adventure, who also employs archetypes and tropes beneath his story, George's A Song of Ice and Fire was no doubt influenced by the monomyth. Edward Tyler might have started the analysis, Joseph Campbell might have put it on our bookshelves, yet neither was a fiction writer thinking in the same terms as George. It's a literary perspective we are seeking today, and so we'll simplify Campbell's concept, which otherwise can be rather convoluted. We'll not only explain the cycle, but also highlight where it aligns with A Song of Ice and Fire and its characters. So, let's start with The Voyage and Return, an adventure tale as old as time. We all know it. A character begins in a familiar place. They go away to an unfamiliar place. They change and come back a slightly different person. Odysseus, Bilbo Baggins, Harry Potter, Neo. This, to us, is the essence of the hero's journey we've boiled down to three acts. In the first act is a phase called... The call to adventure. A comfortable character will never be a hero. They need to receive the call. A call to an unfamiliar place could come from Uncle Benjamin visiting from the Night's Watch for Jon Snow, or from a three-eyed crow in a dream for Bran. It could be an order from King Robert to become Hand for Ned, 
or from the subsequent trip to King's Landing for Sansa and Arya. It could be Doran arranging a voyage across the narrow sea for Quentin, or orders to revisit his now unfamiliar home for Theon. Bilbo Baggins received a job offer from a party of dwarves. Luke Skywalker received Leia's message. Frodo received the ring. All these characters will leave their comfort zone and never be the same again. Sometimes a character will hesitate to go on their adventure. Campbell calls Phase 2 refusing the call. Let's look at Ned Stark. His call comes from Robert's offer to bestow the handship upon him, to make him arguably the second most powerful man in the Seven Kingdoms. Here's what we learn from Ned's point of view. It was the last thing in the world Ned wanted. Ned says he is not worthy of the honour, but with Robert's wish to betroth Sansa to Joffrey, we realise the Northman is in a tight spot. He asks for some time to discuss the propositions with his wife, and it says, For a moment, Eddard Stark was filled with a terrible sense of foreboding. This was his place, here in the North. So, Ned doesn't accept the call to adventure immediately, and with glee. Rather, it takes another event, the receipt of Lysa's letter, to finally make him answer the call to leave his home and journey into an unfamiliar place. The hesitation on Ned's part both adds to the tension and frames the character as a reluctant hero. This is how refusing the call functions. And the next phase is meeting the mentor. Once the character has accepted the call to adventure, a hero might meet a mentor figure. Think Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. The early mentor can offer help for the upcoming journey. Arya Stark fits this well. When Arya wants to learn how to wield her needle, Ned hires an unusual tutor, Sirio Farrell. Like Obi-Wan, he's memorable and designed to be liked. Sirio's foreign sword technique, water dancing, is perfect for Arya. The pair bond as they train, and useful lessons are taught right before our eyes. Now we will begin the dance. Remember, child, this is not the Iron Dance of Westeros we are learning. The Knight's Dance, hacking and hammering, no... This is the Bravo's dance, the water dance, swift and sudden. All men are made of water. Do you know this? When you pierce them, the water leaks out and they die. By the time the pair are forced apart, Arya has learned everything she needed from Sirio. She's equipped and prepared by his teachings to go on to her next phase, and his influence echoes throughout her story. That's the role of the early mentor, and as we'll see, mentoring in general becomes a large part of several stories. Look at Arya, Bran, and Sansa via mentors learning their way towards change. And the next phase is called Crossing the Threshold. The character enters the unfamiliar world. They're going to have to acclimatise, but it's not easy at first. When the Lannisters come for Arya... There's no turning back. Her world changes so quickly and it's unclear what the rules are in her new situation. She's in great danger and responds by killing a boy 
and the tone is set for her journey. It says, She backed away slowly, needle red in her hand. She had to get away, someplace far from here, someplace safe away from the stable boy's accusing eyes. Arya's otherworld is a war-ravaged kingdom where her privilege is turned on its head. To evade capture, she must cease to be herself. Ned goes from idyllic Winterfell to a political viper's nest in King's Landing. Rob Stark goes from young heir of a lord to king, rebel, and war leader. Theon Greyjoy goes from Rob's side to Pike. Bran goes from Winterfell to the far north. Daenerys goes from Illyrio's manse in Pentos to the Dothraki Sea. All these characters were crossing the threshold into an unfamiliar world to begin their own unique journeys like Neo in The Matrix taking the red pill. Crossing a new external threshold is the beginning of true internal change. And sometimes to change, we need to take ourselves apart before we can build. Once a character has crossed the threshold, they might require deconstruction. This phase is called the belly of the whale. Jon Snow loses his privilege with the Night's Watch. He had to build himself up from a low position. Jon had to be willing to change, like Jonah in his three days inside the whale, or like Arya becoming Arry. Daenerys loses her husband, her child, her identity and her kalasar, and then her hair, literally emerging from a funeral pyre to become a leader. Theon veers towards change after being broken down by Ramsay's torture. Jaime loses part of his external and internal self when his hand is removed before he begins to change. Making a character less complicated can make it easier to change and remould them, and that's what this phase is all about. When a character is ready to change, they enter the next phase the road of trials. It's a time to make new acquaintances, friends, enemies, and allies. It's also time to see if the character will sink or swim in their unfamiliar world. This is Neo not making a roof jump in a simulation, or heroes fighting imperial forces and yeti monsters in The Empire Strikes Back. What doesn't kill them makes them stronger. We see Rob Stark successfully cutting his teeth at Whispering Wood and Arya surviving incognito at Harrenhal with new allies. Jon Snow ends up north of the Wall where he's chosen by Quarren Halfhand to investigate the Wildlings. Jon's character is put to the test in various ways both internally and externally. Watching a character overcome obstacles and trials is a satisfying and convincing way to recognize growth. In many cases, this phase of conflict can last a significant part of the journey, and throughout the saga of the five books, there are countless trials and tribulations, from the cruelties of court that Sansa is faced with, to the literal trials of Tyrion's story. And Campbell next cites a phase he calls the meeting with the goddess. In layman's terms, this is where a character gain something pivotal to aid them, sometimes from a very important person. This could be an item, a realisation, or anything else that you can think of that changes the journey. This could be Brienne receiving Oathkeeper from Jamie, the man she described as looking like half a god. 
The gift literally equipped her in a mission to rescue the Stark girls, changing the course of her story. It solidified her respect for Jamie and allowed her to be true to her vows in the most poetic terms possible. Here's the passage. When Ned Stark died, his greatsword was given to the king's justice, Jamie told her. But my father felt that such a fine blade was wasted on a mere headsman. He gave Sir Illyn a new sword and had ice melted down and reforged. There was enough metal for two new blades. You're holding one. So you'll be defending Ned Stark's daughter with Ned Stark's own steel, if that makes any difference to you. Sir, I... I owe you an apology. He cut her off. Take the bloody sword and go before I change my mind. And we soon find out that the gift of the sword reminds Brienne of the legend of Sir Galadon of Morn, who received an enchanted blade from the maiden herself, the meeting with the goddess phase taken to the letter of Campbell's definition. And the cycle continues with the next phase, named The Woman as a Temptress. It's wise to think of some of these stages as non-literal, and of course in modern storytelling, temptation doesn't have to come from a woman, but the temptation should be of the sort that might throw a hero off their tracks. This phase can be seen as a metaphor for the earthly material pleasures that could derail the journey altogether, something that must be tasted but ultimately resisted. Campbell's language may be dated, but the analysis is valid. And in Jon Snow's storyline, there was a literal woman, Egret. Jon's loyalty and identity as a man of the Night's Watch comes under threat as he falls in love with the enemy. He finds his heart in conflict with itself as they make love in a northern cave. He feels guilty, thinking, if this is so wrong, why did the gods make it feel so good? And that chapter ends with Egret voicing her temptation. John could forget his vows and stay with her forever. Although the following passage is essentially a pipe dream, the lustful temptation is a typical part of this particular stage. She says, John Snow, let's not go back to Steer and Jarl. Let's go down inside and join up with Gendel's children. I don't ever want to leave this cave, John Snow. Not ever. As we said, the temptation doesn't have to come from a woman. In Daenerys' story, we see temptation of the flesh coming from a man. Danny attempts heroics in Essos as she provides formidable opposition to the slavery machine. However, the strain of leadership begins to show and it's blue-bearded flamboyant ladies' man Dario Naharis to whom Danny turns for intimate stress relief. The relationship with Dario speaks to a part of Danny that simply wants to be a free young woman with love and lust and sex. But it also distracts her from the gravity of her situation as Queen of Marine. As with Egret and John, Dario is inappropriate as a long-term partner for Danny. The temptation feels so good nonetheless. Here's a passage in which Danny both feels that temptation and acknowledges it as a distraction from her higher purpose. 
Danny tried to imagine what it would be like if she allowed Dario to kiss her, the way Jorah had kissed her on the ship. The thought was exciting and disturbing both at once. It is too great a risk. The Tairoshi sellsword was not a good man. No one needed to tell her that. Under the smiles and the jests, he was dangerous, even cruel. But these were foolish thoughts. She had a city to take, and dreaming of kisses, and some sellswords, bright blue eyes, would not help her breach the walls of Marine. So, temptation from a woman and a man, but this phase could also be thought of more broadly. What if Bran's weirnet powers turn into an addiction that begins to distract him from his true purpose in the tree? He might have to pull himself away in order to fulfill his destiny, just as John and Danny have to eventually turn their backs on their temptations, though they might never forget the imprint left behind. As we approach the centre point of the monomyth cycle, it gets more difficult to choose examples from the A Song of Ice and Fire text, given there are at least two doorstoppers yet to be published. But we can at least try speculating on the future of character arcs where we need to. So the next phase is called Atonement with the Father. This is all about a character's showdown with their maker. George Lucas went with a quite literal interpretation when he was writing Star Wars. Luke Skywalker has a revelatory interaction with the antagonistic Darth Vader, who's revealed to be the young man's father. And typical George style, Tyrion Lannister's atonement with his father is subverted as the imp kills the cruel and overbearing Tywin. In the scene, the text is littered with the language of a dysfunctional father and son that have nothing in common, until Tyrion confesses that he believes he's Tywin writ small. Jaime later hears from Tywin's sister Jenna, who agrees, telling him, You smile like Jerrion and fight like Tig, and there's some of Kevin in you, else you wouldn't wear that cloak. But Tyrion is Tywin's son, not you. So Tyrion killed his father and realised he was looking into a mirror. Perhaps Danny's inner doubts represent a struggle against her long-dead father and his legacy of madness, which she might one day have to confront herself amid the fear that madness could be part of her too. When Baristan discusses the issue with Danny, he may as well be saying, don't turn into your father. I am no maester to quote history at you, your grace. Swords have been my life, not books, but every child knows that the Targaryens have always danced too close to madness. Your father was not the first. King Jaehaerys once told me that madness and greatness are two sides of the same coin. Every time a new Targaryen is born, he said, the gods toss the coin in the air and the world holds its breath to see how it will land. But once again, the father aspect need not be entirely literal. It's really a representation of someone with power or pertinence in the character's life. In the absence of the dead Ned, Rob, and Catelyn Stark, Theon Greyjoy might be looking for some northern atonement to resolve his issues of split identity, in which case 
Jon Snow could become the father stand-in, the one who has the power to absolve Theon of his guilt and allow his arc to continue to its natural conclusion. Jon himself might find his figure to be carved in stone. Lyanna's statue in the Winterfell crypts could provide his meeting-my-maker moment when he learns the truth of his birth. And finally, a literal and straightforward meet-your-maker showdown might occur in the future story of Samuel Tarly, who entered an unfamiliar world when he left the Wall for the Citadel in Old Town. Samuel has a horrendous backstory with his father, Randall, whose cruelty has scarred him. But those two have unfinished business, and in their likely future meet-up in the Winds of Winter, this atonement from the father phase of the hero's journey shouldn't stray far from our minds. By now, the hero is starting to understand their surrounding situation a lot better than they once did. The audience can feel the progress, and the character can as well. They've reached the next phase, one Campbell calls the apotheosis. Here there's a realization which marks the character's improved understanding of their world and journey. This knowledge arms them as they approach the climax of the cycle. As mentioned, Samwell's journey into the unfamiliar might be directing him towards an important scene with his father, which could then follow into this apotheosis. Could Samwell, studying at the Citadel, make a vital realisation that aids not only himself, but his friends and allies as well? Will he read about the nature of the others, or about the last hero's exploits? He might uncover some vital information that could aid mankind. And John might make similar realizations at the wall. After a presumed rebirth of some kind, he'll be keen to organize the North and then better understand the icy horde knocking at their proverbial door. It might only take a small epiphany for him to understand the other's weaknesses enough to give his side the upper hand. In Sherlock Holmes terminology, you might call this an aha moment, where a character earns crucial knowledge and, as we know, Knowledge is power. And speaking of earned knowledge, Bran Stark entered his unfamiliar world to get to Bloodraven, who is now teaching him to harness the infinite wisdom of the Weirnet. An aha moment will surely arise within his pages, and who knows what boon that could lead to. The ultimate boon is what Campbell calls the next phase. This is where all the hard work has paid off, and the hero finally gets their reward. Sansa's other world was a journey through various political viper's nests, and until this point, she's been a mere pawn. When Sansa hits the ultimate boon phase, she will become a player. Her path has been one of torment, but all those lessons she received from people who sought to use her will finally be turned on their heads. Littlefinger beware... When the time is ripe, Sansa will play you off the Savas board and consolidate power for her own role. The resulting boon will be her leadership, and it will likely benefit her subjects, especially if you consider the North might need strong leaders before the others arrive. And as we'll be discussing, I will no doubt become a master assassin, 
Bran, a master greenseer, and Sansa, a master player. These characters will gain a boon for themselves and for their allies. Essentially, they will have mastered the unknown. This is the final stage of this act, occurring before or as they return home. The third act of the cycle, The Return, is all about the heroes bringing back their new skills to the environment they started in. The ceaseless journeying is almost over. Now we want to see what our heroes can do. However, heroes don't always want to go where we want them to, and the next phase is called Refusing the Return. In a mirror to the earlier phase named Refusing the Call, Refusing the Return is when a hero hesitates to come home. In The Lord of the Rings, having destroyed the ring, Frodo barely had the energy to live on, never mind get himself home and certainly not to resume his normal life. In A Song of Ice and Fire, we might see characters reaching literal or figurative crossroads, unsure of which path to take. Home, the past, normalcy can be scary prospects when you've been out and mastered the unknown. Home is where the old self used to dwell, after all, before everything changed. Hesitation builds tension, but don't expect our heroes to avoid their destiny for too long. Campbell cites the next phase as the magic flight. This is where the character wants to cross the threshold back into their old world with their new skills, but must make some form of escape to do so. The journey home can be as perilous as the one there, so expect some adventure heading homeward as well. At different times, Frodo and Gandalf both took magical flights with the eagles, and perhaps Arya's version will be to escape the faceless men and bring back her boon incognito. And perhaps we could also see John's probable resurrection in this light as well. And then some characters might need aid and help to get home. They might have been weakened or even injured when they claimed their boon. So now is a great time for the hero to display what a fine selection of rescuers they have around them. These assistants are likely to be friends or associates from their quest. And this phase is called Rescue from Without. This is Han Solo showing up at the last minute in the Millennium Falcon to protect Luke Skywalker, or the members of Dumbledore's army and the Order of the Phoenix rallying to help Harry Potter reach his endgame. Given so many of our POVs have ventured into unfamiliarity and could potentially return home, almost all of whom have made dependable friends and allies, it's difficult to predict how many could fall into this phase. Perhaps a number of them will even aid each other. Next is a phase called Crossing the Threshold, where the hero returns with new skills and shares them with their fellows. As we mentioned, home is going to feel rather alien after an adventurous journey away. As Campbell puts it, the first problem of the returning hero is to accept as real, after an experience of the soul-satisfying vision of fulfillment, the passing joys and sorrows, banalities and noisy obscenities of life. Why re-enter such a world? What the positive manifestation will be of 
numerous characters returning from years-long journeys with new skills, ideas and allies is difficult to predict, but there will no doubt be many scenes which serve as a melting pot of completed character growth. A good number might need to band together to beat their external demons, the icy others. The journey thus far has been a cycle. It speaks to an innate sense of story in the human soul, where leaving familiarity, mastering unfamiliarity, and returning positively changed is a sequence that garners inherent rewards. When our heroes are overcoming the others, the external rewards of these journeys will be there on display, But the hero's journey essentially serves as a metaphor. The journey was also an internal one. In the denouement of A Song of Ice and Fire, we will see characters in their final form. When they have mastered their external circumstances, and when they have also mastered their inner selves, then they are in the penultimate phase which Campbell names... Master of two worlds, meaning both the external and internal worlds. Now, the final phase in the hero's journey is called freedom to live. Having mastered the inner and outer worlds, the character is now a fully-fledged master of their lives. The character is no longer afraid of death or the future and doesn't need to dwell in the past. They're living in the moment, and this is freedom to live, We can only wonder which of our favorite characters will achieve this zen-like status in the saga's denouement. George doesn't like to make it easy for his characters, and we expect more than a few might arrive at this stage inverted. But hopefully, some will have gained this freedom to live. So those are the 17 phases of the hero's journey, according to Campbell. Now, we said earlier we were looking for a literary perspective on this cycle, given Campbell was not really a fiction writer, and so we must imagine it through a fantasy author's eyes. The first observation we would make in this regard is that A Song of Ice and Fire is full of archetypes that were recognised, yet not created by the monomyth. However, the hero's journey is not a blueprint for writers. George hasn't used all 17 consecutive phases to create an arc, neither of any of the other pop culture stories we referenced. We see certain phases pop up across various arcs and the greater stories here and there. No single character in A Song of Ice and Fire functions as the hero. Instead, we have many characters who resemble heroes at certain times. This is partly due to the POV structure offering different perspectives, remembering each character can be the hero of their own story. So for George, it's likely more of a rough guide than a template, something he can use to exploit the archetypes that would suit a particular arc. We think fiction writers can use the cycle as it suits them, perhaps in a modular fashion. Trying to use it to the letter in the stated order is not a magical formula for writing heroic fantasy. The same can be said of using tropes. George says he does use them, but he hits them with a hammer. 
This isn't an indictment of tropes by George, more that he finds playing them straight somewhat boring, just as regurgitating the hero's journey would be. Instead, we see the monomyth peppered over many characters and arcs amidst twists and subversions and headless heroes. And some writers find Campbell's cycle overwrought as a whole and have taken to revising the cycle into a more simplistic form, which has helped to modernise the concept. Television writer Dan Harmon, creator of Rick and Morty, among other things, has streamlined the journey into an eight-stage story circle that he uses for much of his writing. He sees the hero's journey like this. 1. A character is in a zone of comfort. 2. They want something. 3. So they enter an unfamiliar situation. 4. They adapt to it. 5. They find what they wanted. 6. They pay the price. 7. And then they go back to where they started. And 8. And they're now capable of change. So that's an easier way to digest the essence of the monomyth. Dan Harmon believes he sees this simplified cycle in much of the TV and movies he consumes. If this simple story circle is really so pervasive in storytelling, we should be asking why. If Arya, Sansa, and Bran are hitting Harmon's story circle point for point, then what is it we all find so appealing about this process, and why are writers like George telling tales this way? Archetypes, unlike tropes, are said to be innate, and are a part of a human truth that's resided in our collective consciousness for years beyond count. We're in a familiar place, we need to go into an unfamiliar place, we pay the price, and then we come home changed. Harmon points out that in our caveman days, the real heroes among us would have to go through this cycle simply to survive, and it's been with us ever since. The cyclical essence of the hero's journey is therefore in all of us. It lives within the human mind and is felt by the human heart, just as the Aristotelian three-act structure is. And that is why George has weaved these ancient archetypes through his magnum opus, just as other storytellers have done since the dawn of human consciousness. They are etched upon his heart too. Nevertheless, he utilises archetypes creatively and without moulding flawless and clichéd perfect heroes that feel like they've been made from a blueprint. Ultimately, such archetypes provide George with a foundation on which to build his stories. Stories he hopes will resonate within our hearts. And next up, we'll be weaving more of the hero's journey into a discussion on mentoring. The singers carved eyes into their heart trees to awaken them, and those are the first eyes a new green seer learns to use. But in time, you will see well beyond the trees themselves. This is the Bravo's dance, the water dance, swift and sudden. All men are made of water. Do you know this? Every man's a piece to start with, and every maid as well. Even some who think they're players. 
and when you know what a man wants, you know who he is and how to move him. So we're calling this section Making a Hero, and we'll be focusing on the theme of mentoring in A Song of Ice and Fire. The mentor and student, the master and pupil, the guru and disciple. Here is a story archetype that lends itself to certain tropes that we all recognise given their widespread use in all manner of tales. It's also a key aspect of the hero's journey. Yeah, since Joseph Campbell released The Hero with a Thousand Faces, the two blockbuster movies most easily distinguishable as having been directly influenced by the hero's journey might be Star Wars and The Matrix. And to us, this is due to the clarity of the mentor-student dynamic. When Obi-Wan is teaching Luke about the Force, and when Morpheus is training Neo in Matrix Kung Fu, this is when one can feel the monomyth coming through the screen. In discussion on the hero's journey, a Song of Ice and Fire fans are quick to bring up typical hero types such as Jon Snow. However, there are three characters we believe are shining examples of the monomyth archetypes that can be overlooked. Bran, Arya and Sansa's stories are linked by a foundation of mentorship and as such are heavily relatable to the hero's journey. But in this section, we hope to show that these three stories have even more in common. We're going to suggest that from an archetype standpoint, they are in fact the same story being told three times. Beneath the three arcs is the same familiar heroic cycle utilising the same archetypes and tropes to shape and drive their stories. The journeys of these three characters begin at home, typical of both children's stories and the monomyth. George imbues Winterfell with that special homely feeling, so it feels like the reader's home, too. And home might not be absolutely perfect. Sansa might fight with Arya, for instance, but this type of minor conflict is relatable to most modern households. What matters is that we're in an established, familiar place that serves as a zone of comfort. But soon we sense that change is in the air. Sure enough, Bran is pushed from a tower, and the girls leave for King's Landing. And early on we get glimpses of mentorship. Bear in mind that these three are particularly young, and so are more ripe for mentor tutelage than the more independent heroic characters. Although we realise all three kids have been raised well by Ned and Kat, it's important for George to show us someone actually teaching them independently of their parents. Bran has interesting conversations with Maester Lewin, who gives him his first lesson about greenseeing. The first men believed that the greenseers could see through the eyes of the weirwoods. Supposedly, the greenseers also had powers over the beasts of the wood and the birds in the trees. And we learn that Sansa has been groomed for nobility and courtly life by Septimordain, and we see the latter delivering advice to her rather pretentiously, like this. Septimordain sniffed in disapproval. A noble lady does not feed dogs at her table. And Arya, who in contrast to her sister, seems to reject the instruction of the scepter, gets practical advice on combat from Jon Snow. First lesson, Jon said, stick them with a pointy end. 
Neither Lewin, Septim Ordain, nor Jon Snow are the true mentors of these kids' stories, more like early teachers, but they do set up the mentorship arcs of their respective pupils. When Lewin talks of green seers, it's a setup for Bran's long journey to become one. When Septim Ordain instructs Sansa on aspects of becoming a lady, it's the beginning of the girl's ambitions that will no doubt see her become a political player one day. And when Jon teaches Arya how to kill, it's the groundwork of her assassin story. All three heroes are in training from the very beginning in very different disciplines, and we get to see their lessons delivered on page. The disciplines coordinate with what the characters want, their ambition. Call this their dramatic goal, the objective which drives them to change and evolve as characters. Aya is essentially a tomboy and isn't interested in Septim Ordain's needlework. John gifts her with a needle of her own, and her dramatic goal is suddenly evident. She wants to learn how to use that sword and become a fighter of some sort, and later, of course, an assassin seeking revenge. Sansa's dramatic goal is obvious from the offset, to be a lady of nobility and refinement. This is initially a social goal that becomes political later on. And while Bran is comatose, he is visited by the three-eyed crow in order to open the boy's third eye, a more magical and spiritual goal than the others. So on the surface, it would appear the three are headed in very different story directions, Yet, under the hood, the engines and mechanics are all the same. And from a familiar environment, all three enter unfamiliar worlds. It begins in Bran's story, when he wakes from his coma, and even in his own home, things have changed dramatically. Imagine waking up and there's only Rob and Rickon around, and your legs don't work, and then Rob leaves and you're suddenly the Stark in Winterfell, making decisions at age seven. But that's just the start. His surroundings get more and more unfamiliar when he has to leave Winterfell and head north with the Reeds. Having left for King's Landing while Bran was unconscious, Sansa and Arya don't see him again. Their worlds get more and more unfamiliar too, from the journey south to King's Landing and then the chaotic change when Ned dies. All three have entered the unfamiliar and now they must adjust and adapt. But changes on the outside mean they must change on the inside too. Luckily, they have a new set of teachers to help. Adapting to an unfamiliar environment is difficult, an ongoing process taking several books for all of them, and it's all about learning. Arya had been prepared for her trek across a war-torn world and beyond by Sirio Farrell. His lessons and encouragement are vital to her survival and state of mind, from the practical... All men are made of water. Do you know this? When you pierce them, the water leaks out and they die. To the philosophical, fear cuts deeper than swords. And, coupled with her never-say-die attitude, these lessons allow her to adapt and become more independent, albeit with the aid of earned friendships along the way. One of those friends is Jack and Hagar, who gives her an iron coin that will lead to her solo trip to Bravos to train in an elite assassin's guild. The payoff for multiple books worth of learning set against a backdrop of her familial tragedies draws ever closer. Now she just needs one final stint of learning at the House of Black and White to achieve her dramatic goal. Bran's next teacher is Jojen Reed, 
George can't let these kids stop learning their crafts, so he writes Jojen as a green dreamer, not quite a green seer, but in possession of a talent that can translate to useful lessons for Bran. Jojen and Mira accompany Bran up north, as if leading him to his destiny, and Jojen continues where Maester Lewin left off. Then you teach me. Bran still feared the three-eyed crow who haunted his dreams sometimes, pecking endlessly at the skin between his eyes and telling him to fly. You're a greenseer. No, said Jojen, only a boy who dreams. The greenseers were more than that. They were wargs as well, as you are, and the greatest of them could wear the skins of any beast that flies or swims or crawls, and could look through the eyes of the weirwoods as well, and see the truth that lies beneath the world. So Jojen isn't just teaching Bran, he's teaching us too. After arriving in the far north, Bran, like his sister in Bravos, needs just one final stint of learning inside the Three-Eyed Crow's cave to achieve his dramatic goal. Sansa's world of unfamiliarity revolves around being made a captive. It says initially that she loved King's Landing, the pageantry of the court, the high lords and ladies in their velvets and silks and gemstones, the great city with all its people. But when she loses her father, the same setting begins to appear very different. She's frequently abused by Joffrey, used by Cersei, and almost every friend she makes seems false, wanting to take advantage of her naivete. Life is not a song, sweetling. You may learn that one day to your sorrow. Littlefinger had warned her in A Game of Thrones, but we sense that deep down she possesses more potential than other characters give her credit for. The chess game going on around her was unplayable at first, but all the time she was learning. Cersei becomes a strange sort of teacher. Who better to teach the harsh realities of court? Well, in the end, we'd have to call Cersei an anti-mentor, because for the most part she teaches Sansa how not to behave. For example... The only way to keep your people loyal is to make certain they fear you more than they do the enemy. Ruling with fear is the way of Tywin and the Lannisters, the antithesis of Ned and the Stark philosophy. Coming from Cersei, Sansa is unlikely to take her advice and suddenly want to rule by fear. In contrast, she thinks to herself that if she were ever a queen, she would make her subjects love her, and we will no doubt witness that in future volumes. So after much suffering and many lessons, Sansa is spirited away by Littlefinger. He might have some bizarre designs on her and is certainly not to be trusted as a friend, but might well be the perfect mentor. After arriving in the Vale, Sansa also just needs one final stint of learning to achieve her dramatic goal. And that's the same conclusion three times. By the end of A Dance with Dragons, all three characters have arrived in a new place and are about to enter the home stretch with regard to learning their discipline. Bran, Arya and Sansa are under the wing of what we expect to be their final mentors, Bloodraven, the Kindly Man and Littlefinger respectively, so we can view this phase as their finishing school, where they will put the final polish on their new skills and finally change from students into masters. 
In doing so, they will achieve their earlier dramatic goal to become a green seer, an assassin, and a political player, respectively. So the three siblings will achieve their destinies. In the most unexpected of ways, they have all sought the empowerment to seize control of their own narratives after a period of chaos. While none of them would have predicted where their journeys would end up, their arrival is going to feel great for the reader, having witnessed the metamorphic sequence unfold. All three have seen their family decimated, their home destroyed, and have suffered physically and mentally. This will amount to the internal price that comes with the change, so that it feels earned. And perhaps the place where the cost will be most clearly evidenced is within the character's sense of identity and personality. Becoming a green seer, Bran is likely to lose some of his individuality. As a result, he might end up distanced from the here and now. When Sansa eventually drops her facade of Elaine Stone, her true self will have changed. After all she suffered, she might appear much more serious or stern than anyone would have predicted. And when Arya finally stops becoming no one and returns to being Arya as a trained killer, she might appear cold and ruthless. And of interest, from a broad perspective, what we're predicting for these three Starks is essentially the distillation of their Stark characteristics. Take Bran, who takes after his mother's family in looks and once dreamed of being a knight of the Kingsguard, a very southern ambition, if ever there was one. His transformation will see him become a green seer, wedded to the weirwood trees, and in personality chilly and distant, almost the epitome of the northern spiritual heritage. Sansa, rather than being the wife of a southern lord and living her life as if in a chivalrous song, we think will become a leader who embodies her house words. Winter is coming could easily be her mantra as she prepares to shepherd her people through one of the most difficult eras of their history. Then there's Arya, surely the embodiment of the wolf's blood. We think her thirst for vengeance will gradually shift to a focus on justice, with her wielding the proverbial sword that delivers justice to foes and wrongdoers, she will embody Ned's philosophy that he who passes the sentence must swing the sword. In the end, all three will be described by words we commonly see applied to historical Starks. Distant, grim, cold, stern, serious... They will also have paid an internal price for their transformation related to their identities and sense of self. We might yearn to see the old adventurous and sunny Bran, the happy-go-lucky Arya, or innocent Sansa, but readers will accept these changes because a price was paid. These are typical dynamics of coming-of-age tales, only darker in tone as befits this story. Some analysts look at the monomyth as a system of rebirth, and the rebirths on display here can certainly be viewed through a coming-of-age lens. The final part of the internal metamorphosis requires the characters to shed one more layer. A true master does not need a mentor, and our trio will one day outgrow their relationships with their masters, Following the mentor archetype, we think it's very likely that all three will surpass those masters, allowing them to become fully independent and ready for the world like a butterfly opening its wings for the first time.
In the cave up north, Bloodraven is teaching Bran the rules and limitations of greenseeing. At one stage, he says this about the people of the past. Through the trees I see them still, but no word of mine has ever reached them. The past remains the past. We can learn from it, but we cannot change it. And so fans wonder if Bran will ultimately be able to change the past, which would mean he would have bettered Bloodraven and therefore surpassed his master. In the House of Black and White, Arya is being taught that she must give up her identity as she learns how to be one of the Faceless Men if she manages to obtain the skills she desires while secretly maintaining her own sense of self, she could end up outsmarting the kindly man and surpassing her master. And then the Sansa, being taught to play the Game of Thrones by Littlefinger. We believe it's foreshadowed that Baelish will be toppled, and if Sansa's not a huge part of his downfall, then what would be the point of her arc? She's slowly changing from a pawn into a player, and we expect her to outmaneuver Littlefinger at the perfect moment. Again, the student will have surpassed the master. Obviously, this is all speculative, but we find these assertions likely, given we believe that the same story is being told three times at the archetype level. Incidentally, if you want an example of the student surpassing the master in pop culture... Here's a quote you might recognise. The circle is complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. And that's Darth Vader, formerly Anakin Skywalker, speaking to Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars A New Hope. Whether Vader did in fact surpass Obi-Wan is debatable, but this was certainly the mould George Lucas was playing with. Expect similar dynamics to come to the fore in the Winds of Winter. Once the trio arrive at the climax of their arcs, they will need to return to the place where the story began in order to complete the cycle. In children's stories, the protagonist often goes on an independent adventure before returning home. And in the hero's journey, the character must return home with their new boon to aid the restoration of the initial status quo. We imagine this happening very clearly in the arcs of our trio. They can return home and each can use their new skills to help retake Winterfell, defeat the others and restore order to the north. It's essential that all three play their part for their individual arcs to make sense. There will also be opportunity for fantastic dynamics between our three heroes, who will all have changed and will have to readjust to each other, but will doubtless be glad to be reunited. Readers have a lot of reasons to be excited about this phase. It promises action, payoff, and no doubt some tearjerker moments. Finally, with all obstacles overcome, both internal and external, the characters will gain the freedom to live, the final aspect of the journey. They'll fear neither past nor future, they'll be living in the moment, and their growth will be evident. Their hero's journeys will be complete. 
In the last segment, we discussed Dan Harmon's Story Circle, a condensed version of the hero's journey he believes writers use frequently. It goes like this. A character is in a zone of comfort, but they want something, so they enter an unfamiliar situation. They adapt to it, find what they wanted, pay the price, and go back to where they started, and are now capable of change. In this analysis of Bran, Arya, and Sansa, we walked through every stage of Harmon's circle, and all three of our heroes hit every mark very clearly, without any shoehorning. Coupled with the overt mentoring themes, we believe these three arcs to be classic examples of the hero's journey. The notion that these are the same story being repeated three times on an archetypal level with different settings, protagonists, antagonists, and so forth, seems like a fair shout to us, but we'll have to wait until the series is completed to know for sure. And if George has done this, it's very clever because it's not something we really notice until we analyse the three arcs closely. Their arcs don't feel the same, which speaks to how much individuality George has imparted in the surface layers of these three characters and stories. There's only so many ways to tell a story after all, and it shows that if a writer is smart enough, they can repeat archetypes and mechanisms without foregoing originality. Having similar understories in this instance might even have subconsciously strengthened the feeling of kinship between the characters of Bran, Arya and Sansa, and might allow their arcs to crescendo at the same time, culminating in the renaissance of House Stark. We look forward to seeing it all unfold on page. With Jon Snow venturing on a somewhat similar journey, it's easy to see why George describes the Stark family as heroes in this story, and we certainly think they are in the Campbellian sense. Next up, we'll look at a hero's journey that subverts the typical course of a quest. Step up, Frog Prince, Quentin Martell. The hero sets out with his friends and companions, faces dangers, comes home triumphant. Only some of his companions don't return at all. The hero never dies, though. I must be the hero. Quentin Martell While there is evidence of monomyth-relatable archetypes across A Song of Ice and Fire... George attempts to avoid hero cliches by subverting expectations. In this way, he can use familiar archetypes, themes and tropes beneath his story whilst developing them into something original. As we've said, he famously killed off Ned early, then his son Rob got the same treatment, and then, in A Dance with Dragons, we got the story of Quentin Martell. Quentin is not a character we've covered before, so we'll save a truly deep analysis for a future Quentin episode, but it would be remiss of us to exclude the Dornish Prince in a discussion of heroism in A Song of Ice and Fire. When we think of a grand adventure, we might imagine a fairy tale or a Disney story where a perfect prince leaves his home to find the perfect princess, and they fall in love and live happily ever after. This is the ultimate cliché fantasy tale. 
But we all know that George enjoys imparting a grim realism to his world, that real history he's inspired by does not align with fairy tales. So, in Prince, Quentin Martell's story, when he's tasked by his father to find and marry Princess Daenerys Targaryen, George crosses over from fairy tale into dark fantasy. The harsh reality of adventure in George's world is spelled out in the first line of Quentin's POV. Adventure stank, it says, referring to a smuggler's ship while simultaneously foreshadowing a disastrous ending to Quentin's journey from the offset. From the first line, Quentin's story was always meant to be a commentary on classic adventure tales. One of the first things we're told about Quentin pertains to his appearance and disposition. The perfect, strapping, young prince of fairy tales he is not. It says, Quentin cut a poor figure by comparison, short-legged and stocky, thickly built, with hair the brown of new-turned earth. His forehead was too high, his jaw too square, his nose too broad. A good, honest face, a girl had once called it. But you should smile more. Smiles had never come easily for Quentin Martell. His personality is also imperfect. Rather than being a confident, fearless warrior, Quentin displays caution, fear and insecurity through his story. The Dornishman seems real, flawed like you and I. And his journey also feels real, according to the rules of George's world at least. Out of Lys, Quentin's gang face corsairs who slay his friends, Cletus, Will and Kedri. Then the captains of several ships deny him and his remaining companions passage. Incognito, Quentin joins the windblown sellsword company and is given the nickname Frog. The name is at once unflattering and an obvious nod to the Frog Prince fairy tale that was popularized by the Brothers Grimm. After becoming embroiled in warring and sellsword politics in Slaver's Bay that must have been terrifying to be a part of, Quentin is eventually taken to Daenerys' court by Dario Naharis. The Dornish prince takes the opportunity to reveal his true self to Daenerys. In the Frog Prince fairy tale, the princess kisses the frog and he transforms into a prince. However, Quentin was never going to get a kiss from Daenerys. Danny by now has quite the backstory. Khaleesi, mother of dragons, breaker of chains, she's far too independent to play the role of the acquiescent princess. When Quentin reveals himself to be not a frog, but a prince, she outright rejects him. She's already betrothed to Hisdar Solorak and does not feel bound by the parchment Quentin presents describing the secret marriage pact of Viserys and Ariane. Barristan advises the Dornishman to go home, but Quentin doesn't want to disappoint his father and, by extension, Dawn. After a frightening encounter with Daenerys' dragons, Quentin decides he will impress the woman who spurned him by trying to control one of the fire-breathing beasts. This will speak to his Targaryen heritage, he thinks, and really, what could go wrong? It could be that he sees himself as the hero of the story, and remember he thinks to himself that heroes never die. But as Geras Drinkwater later reflects, Quentin is a dreamer, and all dreamers are fools. 
Quentin hires the Windblown to aid the climax of his quest, but will Sellsword stick around if this plan goes southwards? After Daenerys departs the city, he gains access to the pit where Rhaegal and Viserion are kept and attempts to tame the White Dragon. The scared, insecure young man is attempting to bond with a ferocious dragon with barely the faintest of clues what he's doing. This is not going to end well, and sure enough, Rhaegal appears and bathes him in dragon fire while his sellsword companions flee. And then both dragons escape. An impressive day's work for our hero. In his moment of truth, Quentin can only muster the word, Oh! before screaming. The O seems like his final realization that adventure really does stink, that his plan was terrible, that heroes are not invincible, that life is not a song. Ultimately, Quentin attains the fairy tale ending of fighting the dragon before finding himself in the princess's bed, just not quite in the manner he expected. Daenerys was absent for starters. He was three days dying in her bed, his burn so severe that his death was slow agony. Barristan thinks it would have been kinder if the dragons had devoured him. That, at least, would have been quick. This! Fire is a hideous way to die. Small wonder half the hells are made of flame. So George punishes Quentin for his adventure. Barristan thinks he should have stayed a frog, that not all men are made to dance with dragons. The Dragon Tamer chapter title almost seems like it's poking fun, just as Quentin's entire story seems like a perverse subversion of that cliched fairy tale hero. And through the monomyth lens, we can view Quentin's story like this. Quentin began in a place of familiarity. He received a call to adventure from Doran to cross the narrow sea. He crossed the threshold into an unfamiliar place. And then he faced his road of trials. But he failed and he died. Instead of making friends along the way, he lost them. He never got to reach the latter stages of the cycle. For instance, his stated desire to impress his father, which is a stage of the monomyth, could have been fulfilled if he had lived. Ultimately, we can still view Quentin as a hero, though. He represents all of us who daydream of bravery and adventure, but in reality are imperfect, insecure creatures who might need reminding that we're not living in a fairy tale. Quentin Martell might have failed his trials, but at least he tried. Ned tells Bran the only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid, and by this definition, Quentin the Dragon Tamer was brave on a heroic scale. It just turns out that George is a mean trope subverter. Oh. Dragon Mountain. When Johan's village is incinerated by the dragon Bernathor, he doesn't dream of killing the beast. He wants to ride it, for he is Dragon Mountain. Our hero's quest begins. Johan carries a massive sword 
that he conveniently found through scorched villages no one really cares about. He might seem gloomy, but that's because our hero has a tragic backstory. His mother fell from a donkey to her death, and that's why he must become Dragon Mountain. Watch our hero traipse through the Snowdrop Mountains, wearing nothing more than a small fox fur around his nether regions. Just another physical trial for Dragon Mountain. Johan will stop at nothing to kill every mountain orc in his path, rescuing the only attractive female within a hundred leagues. But our hero can't stay in her bed all day. He must visit the Volcano of Doom, for inside he will find Bernathor. There might even be a convenient cache of gold in the dragon's lair, so he can retire with that attractive female. But only if Johan becomes Dragon Mountain. Dragon Mounter, rated PG-13, coming soon to a theater near you. Anyone is the hero of their own story. I have more than a dozen viewpoint characters, and they all are heroes. George R.R. R. Martin Given the ensemble cast of diverse POV characters that A Song of Ice and Fire boasts, and remembering George's assertion that each is the hero of their own story, there are many heroes in this saga. To keep things fresh, George must make sure that he presents a variety of hero archetypes and tropes. And so in this section, we're going to discuss a number of different types of hero found in storytelling and give a well-known example from literature or pop culture for each. Then we'll attempt to match each trope or archetype to a character from A Song of Ice and Fire. We encourage you listeners to think of more examples both from inside and outside of A Song of Ice and Fire as you listen. Spoilers ahead for pop culture references, but we will be saying what references we're going to spoil before we mention them. Romantic Hero Harry Potter, Jon Snow So, we'll begin with the Romantic Hero. The romantic hero is a literary archetype that refers to a character that, quote, rejects established norms and conventions and has been rejected by society. The romantic hero can be solitary and introspective and, in modern versions, often possesses a quality that distinguishes them from ordinary people, setting the hero apart in a way that can be tragic or simply unique. So we're looking for a reject that seems special, and from pop culture, we're going to choose Harry Potter as our example. Harry was sent to his unlikable family, auntie, uncle and cousin, the Dursleys, following the death of his own mother and father. He lives in a cupboard, 
and does not fit in with his surroundings, but otherwise seems relatively ordinary. But he's been rejected by his family and has apparently done nothing to deserve his plight. However, secretly, in a magical other world, Harry is famous for defying the dark magic of arch-villain Voldemort as a baby, and he has the scar to prove it. His parents died in the same confrontation, and the tragic backstory adds to Harry's romantic hero credentials. There is something inherently special about Harry, just how special will become the focus of seven books, and when he leaves for Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, we understand that he will at last be able to harness his abilities in this other world. And we can see in a Song of Ice and Fire romantic hero in the character of Jon Snow. As a supposed bastard, Jon is also a reject of sorts. He's treated differently from his siblings as Harry was with the Dursleys. Jon develops his combat and leadership abilities throughout the books, and his other world is the icy wall built to keep out monsters. The Night's Watch became a sort of family to him, just as Hogwarts provided a sense of family to Potter. And with R plus L equals J, John not only has a tragic backstory of losing both parents, but is also marked as special in the mind of the reader. He might have been born a king, similar to Harry inheriting secret riches and a magical legacy. And John's arc as the probable embodiment of two magical bloodlines could amount to him being the only character to have a bonded direwolf and a dragon. While we'll have to wait and see if that happens, we can say that currently Jon Snow is fitting the bill of a romantic hero rather well. Tragic Hero Romeo and Juliet Eddard Stark Now, tragic heroes are characters whose downfall comes from an error of their own judgment. Don't confuse this with a character whose arc ends in tragedy because they do something evil or corrupt. We're looking for a more reasonable error in judgment, not villainy or an immoral act that gets rightfully punished. The trope of the tragic hero goes a long way back in literature. Aristotle wrote about them, for example, and so we're going to pick an example from historic literature. Romeo and Juliet, from Shakespeare's timeless play of the same name, are a great example. Romeo Montague and Juliet Capulet come from rival families. They are not evil characters and not seeking conflict, but their love for each other is both untenable and unbreakable. Readers can sense early on that tragedy awaits. Not the tragedy of greed or hate, but the tragedy of love. And it's not their deaths that make them tragic heroes, but the manner of their downfall. In order to be together, Romeo and Juliet needed a plan. Juliet consulted Friar Lawrence, who gave her a potion that allowed her to appear dead, to fake her own death. Friar Lawrence sent a message to Romeo to inform him of the plan, but Romeo never got it. This is a classic miscommunication leading to a fatal misunderstanding. 
Romeo then finds Juliet's apparently dead body in a crypt and drinks real poison. Juliet wakes and finds Romeo dead, and she commits suicide too. Errors of judgment have caused their ruin. And in A Song of Ice and Fire, we can consider Rhaegar and Lyanna as Romeo and Juliet-esque. But as we're looking for a POV tragic hero, we'll look to Eddard Stark. Ned is similarly not an evil man. He is dutiful, honourable, and feels morally obliged to protect children. However, in King's Landing... Ned is a fish out of water, and in this viper's nest, it's his moral code that seems both untenable and unbreakable. Something has to give. What follows from Ned is a series of mistakes that lead to his doom. Investigating the suspicious death of John Aaron, Ned realizes that Cersei and Jaime are Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella's true parents. Our honourable hero wants to protect the royal children, so he advises Cersei to flee before the secret comes out. In the meantime, Ned has naively placed his trust in Littlefinger, who tells him, You are slow to learn, Lord Eddard. Distrusting me was the wisest thing you've done since you climbed off your horse. Soon Robert is dead. Cersei and Littlefinger have been scheming together, and they checkmate Ned. Holding a dagger to Ned's throat, Littlefinger says, I did warn you not to trust me, you know. The end result of this plotline is that Ned is beheaded. Overall, errors of judgment led to Ned's downfall. He was too honourable for his own good and too naive for the Game of Thrones, leaving himself open for betrayal he was forewarned about by Littlefinger himself. As a result, headless Ned Stark left the story as a tragic hero. Reluctant Hero John McClane Catelyn Stark The reluctant hero is yet another heroic archetype. These types of heroes usually begin in a place of familiarity, but are forced into a surreal situation. They do not initiate the adventure and are generally unhappy to be involved. The reluctant hero must respond to the drastic changes that befall them, whether they like it or not. And a shining example of a reluctant hero from pop culture is John McClane, the barefooted protagonist portrayed by Bruce Willis in Die Hard. On Christmas Eve, McClane flies into Los Angeles to attend a party where he hopes to save his marriage to his estranged wife. And when terrorists disrupt the party, John is truly the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's just there to see his wife. McLean makes it plain several times that he simply doesn't want to be there. This is a dead giveaway that we are watching a reluctant hero. John doesn't want an adventure, but he's suddenly placed in a violent, surreal situation, and he's simply got no choice. He must respond to the action around him in order to survive. In A Song of Ice and Fire, a prime example of a reluctant hero point of view is Catelyn Stark. 
As the archetypal mother of the story, her role at first seems to be a typical maternal one, encouraging the advancement of her family and then caring for the injured Bran, though she sinks into despair during his continued coma. It takes the cat's paw's attempt on his life and the mounting evidence of a plot against her family to rouse her and send her on a journey south, away from home and hearth, from which she will never return. I must go myself, is her conclusion at Winterfell, though she wishes there was someone else who could. This resolve will follow her through the rest of her arc, to King's Landing, the Inn at the Crossroads, the Vale, the Riverlands, the Stormlands, and back to Riverrun, and finally to the Twins. Catelyn Stark wishes time and again that there was someone else who could do the things she is called upon to do. In particular, when she is sent as an envoy to Renly Baratheon, it says, Cat had never wanted this. And of course, George adds the twist that Cat's actions aren't undertaken to ensure her own survival, but that of her family. Though her thoughts increasingly reflect the weary wisdom implied by the words of the house she married into, acknowledging that winter is indeed coming, as a reluctant hero, Catelyn Tully is the embodiment of her own house words, family, duty, honor. Anti-hero, Michael Corleone, Tyrion Lannister. A heroic archetype that has become very common in modern storytelling is the anti-hero. They often don't have the typical attributes an ideal hero might possess. Oftentimes, anti-heroes are misfits of some sort with a questionable moral compass. This doesn't necessarily mean that they're outright villainous, just that they don't always play nice to get what they want. Their amorality often leaves them feeling isolated and not feeling like heroes. In The Godfather, Al Pacino plays the part of Michael Corleone. Michael is a young war hero with a beautiful girlfriend and has everything going for him. But when his mobster father is almost killed, Adventure calls for Michael and his virtuous path is derailed. He soon finds himself running his mafia family with murders, plots, and power plays that wouldn't look out of place in A Song of Ice and Fire. While playing his Game of Thrones, Michael's hands become increasingly bloody until we barely recognize that uniformed war hero who wanted to play things straight. The corruption of his self continues until he's well into anti-hero territory. The audience roots for him, even though he's becoming a criminal mastermind, assassinating enemies, and becoming increasingly darker. Michael Corleone is not your typical hero. He's ruthless and will do anything to consolidate the power of his family, even if, paradoxically, that means he has to tear the family apart. And in A Song of Ice and Fire, we think there's a good example of an anti-hero in Tyrion Lannister. Tyrion seems like a main character from the offset, but not a typical hero type by any means. For starters, George chooses to make him the antithesis of a perfect hero in the way he looks. Called the imp, Tyrion is a dwarf with mismatched eyes, and his stare is mentioned as making people uncomfortable. Tyrion, of course, uses this to his advantage. Anti-heroes will often use any advantage they can find. 
One such advantage Tyrion holds over others is his intelligence. He's witty and has excellent powers of observation and tries to keep his mind sharp by reading. As he tells Jon Snow, a mind needs books as a sword needs a whetstone. But like Corleone, Tyrion's cunningness often strays into amorality. When singer Simon Silvertongue tries to blackmail Tyrion, Tyrion tells Bronn to make him disappear and Simon ends up in a bowl of brown. And in A Dance with Dragons, when Tyrion manipulates Aegon into launching an invasion, it's almost like Tyrion is amusing himself. Here, Tyrion is blurring the line between anti-hero and villain, just as Corleone did in some sections of The Godfather. This blur occurs because anti-heroes so often flirt with amorality and abuse of power. Anti-heroes have an inherent moral grayness in their hearts, which is why using the archetype for Tyrion must have held so much appeal for George. The Rescuer Imperator Furiosa Daenerys Targaryen Our next example is rescuers, saviour figures who are particularly adept at defending the undefended. They need to be fiercely independent, strong-willed leaders, not afraid of upsetting the status quo and disrupting the established hierarchy. They might have a backstory which makes them understand the plight of underprivileged people and want to protect them. And they've learned the hard way that freedom is a quality well worth fighting for. As such, they're willing to put the emancipation of the downtrodden before anything else. And we've chosen a rescuer hero from pop culture as an example, Imperator Furiosa from Mad Max Fury Road, as portrayed by Charlize Theron. Furiosa is a war captain under the arch-villain Immortan Joe, until one day she turns on him, freeing his five wives who were being kept as breeders against their will. The entire movie captures the thrilling chase that Joe gives across a deserted wasteland. Our rescuer is headed for the Green Place, an area, it turns out, that she originally came from. Theron has said that Furiosa was originally stolen and groomed to be a breeder wife, but was found to be infertile. So, eventually, she emancipated the breeder wives, who were in no position to defend themselves, and did so without any thought of personal gain or risk to herself. And we think a good example of a rescuer hero from A Song of Ice and Fire is Daenerys Targaryen. Despite being born into House Targaryen, Danny lives an impoverished childhood in exile. As the books begin, she is effectively sold to Khal Drogo by her brother, Viserys, who seeks to restore their crumbled fortunes. Danny does well to integrate into the Dothraki, and one day she witnesses a young girl called Erowa being raped by Mago. Daenerys stops Mago and takes Erowa as her own to protect her. Unfortunately, Eroa is later raped, brutalised and murdered under the orders of Mago, but the sequence highlights Danny's willingness to go against the grain and protect the defenceless. In A Storm of Swords, Danny learns of the terror of the eastern slave trade and the despicable manner in which the unsullied are manufactured. She soon declares war on the slave trade itself. A dragon is no slave, she says, before Drogon burns Krasnys alive. 
She frees the Unsullied, who then join her cause, but crucially, she lets them make that decision. Her drive to transmit her sense of morality to those around her, coupled with her strong will and decisive leadership, see Daenerys move across Slaver's Bay, freeing slaves and defying the status quo at every turn. And after conquering the slaver city of Yunkai, Danny hears 10,000 emancipated voices call her Miser, meaning mother. As she settles in Marine, she tries to control the aftermath of her actions, which is far more difficult and complex than she imagined. But one thing is certain, so far, Danny has been playing the role of a rescuer stroke saviour type of hero. She wants to free and protect underprivileged people, and like Furiosa, we can trace that impulse back to her early story. Byronic Hero Rustin Cole, Jamie Lannister Byronic heroes were popularized by the works and life of the poet Lord Byron. A Byronic character is typically attractive yet gloomy, unsociable, difficult to like and be around, and possesses an ethos that makes them incompatible with surrounding characters. They're often intelligent, introspective, and possess a jaded cynicism stemming from a darkness in their past. Deep down, beneath all the layers of loathing, the Byronic hero might eventually turn out to be rather likable, but few characters will ever see this side of them. And we think a great example of a Byronic hero from pop culture is Rustin Cole from HBO's True Detective. Cole is an attractive yet obsessive and brooding detective who is as intelligent as he is aloof. When he says, in his usual abstract manner, that humans are sentient meat and that hope is a delusion, he is immediately at odds with his concrete thinking partner and everyone else around him. Other police don't seem to enjoy him and Cole is suspended from duty at one point. But we learn of his dark past. His young daughter died, ruining his marriage and Cole ended up working undercover in drug operations. Suddenly, we understand his abstract thinking and his cynicism. His partner and the audience ultimately realise that underneath it all, Cole is a good man, scarred by the darker side of life. Byronic characters are often misunderstood, and for the audience, that is part of the appeal of someone like Cole. In A Song of Ice and Fire, Jamie Lannister fits the Byronic bill. Loathed by the masses as the Kingslayer, this character at first seems completely villainous and amoral. He's attractive yet unlikable, arrogant, aloof, and his nonchalant worldview makes him out of sorts with those around him. As we get to know him better, we realize that, like Cole, Jamie is somewhat misunderstood. Bran of Tarth brings the best out in him, culminating in Jamie confessing that he in fact had good reason to slay King Aerys. The madman was going to make an inferno out of King's Landing. Jamie's been an outcast ever since, when he should have been a hero. All of a sudden, Brienne and the audience understand him. The way he acts and thinks, his cynicism, it all makes sense. We've been given a glimpse of truth that other characters can't see. Both Cole and Jamie are characters initially hard to like, 
But when the penny finally drops about what causes their prickliness and what rich inner lives as pear really lead, the audience begins to enjoy them a whole lot more. Redemptive hero, Darth Vader, Theon Greyjoy. A redemptive hero is one who does bad deeds but later in the story changes their behaviour and tries to do good. This is often known as a redemption arc and writers want such characters to earn some kind of forgiveness from the audience. Redemptive characters can sometimes start the story as decent people and so the full arc concerns their corruption before the redemptive elements complete the arc. They often have a weakness for temptation, especially when opportunities to seize power arise. In a successful redemption arc, the audience might view the character as a hero ultimately in spite of considering them a villain midway through their story. Capable of deeds both good and ill, the redemptive hero is a spinning coin and the audience is drawn to see on which side they will ultimately land. They often have an identity crisis of some sort which underscores their cognitive dissonance. And for this trip to the dark side and back, our pick for redemptive hero from pop culture is Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader. The Jedi trained Anakin from a very young age in the ways of the Force. He was a child of great promise without a father who then lost his mother, but he was also hot-headed. He was gradually lured to the dark side of the Force by Chancellor Palpatine, ultimately giving in to the temptation because of his fear of losing his wife. In a classic burning your bridges moment, Anakin murders the Jedi younglings as he turned to the dark side and became Darth Vader. He later faced off with his former mentor, Obi-Wan, who defeated him. Anakin was badly injured and underwent drastic medical procedures, completing his journey to becoming the iconic black-helmeted bad guy we all recognize. And after much villainy, including destruction on a planetary scale, Vader brings his son to the Emperor, who eventually tortures Luke. But there's something human still residing in Vader. He ultimately chooses the life of Luke over the Emperor. Vader turns on his dark master and destroys him, a truly redemptive act. In that moment, he became Anakin again, and we see him without his helm before he dies in his son's arms. In the denouement of episode 6, we see Anakin's force ghost celebrating with the victorious heroes, the conclusion of a classic redemption arc that George Lucas calls The Tragedy of Darth Vader. Although the story of A Song of Ice and Fire is in some way off its denouement, our candidate for the redemptive hero is Theon Greyjoy. Like Anakin, he had a confusing family life. An ironborn, taken as a hostage as a very young boy, he might have felt like he never truly belonged with the Starks. When the opportunity arises, Theon tries to establish his Greyjoy identity by double-crossing the Starks. But it's clear to all that Ned was more of a father to him than Balon had ever been. Still, Theon's identity crisis continues, and, like Vader, he has a burning-your-bridges moment. 
He invades the poorly guarded Winterfell, seizing it from the people he once called family, to his shame, even going so far as to claim that he had murdered his young foster brothers. Soon, Theon himself is double-crossed, and the Dreadfort men burn Winterfell. Now Theon is a captive and is tortured by Ramsay Bolton, his inner identity crisis deepens, and like Vader, he gets a new name. Reek suffers unimaginable cruelty, which allows him to change. In A Dance with Dragons, Reek has his first major redemptive moment. He escapes Winterfell with the long-suffering Jane Poole by jumping from the castle walls. As Reek journeys back into Theon, we expect further acts of redemption from him, until characters and readers alike finally forgive him for his sins. Ultimately, there should also be a resolution to his earlier identity crisis, as with Anakin. Anakin and Theon might have both crossed to the dark side, but ultimately, both will find redemption. Unlikely hero, Samwise Gamgee, Samuel Tarly. An unlikely hero is one who we would never normally expect to display heroic traits. Their looks and personality are not typically heroic, and they show no genuine interest in typical heroic pursuits. Unlikely heroes might normally be cowards, but they'll still end up saving the day somehow. These characters possess heroic qualities somewhere deep down inside them, which surface right when they're needed. And one of the greatest unlikely heroes in literature is Samwise Gamgee in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Initially included in his master Frodo's quest by a complete fluke, Samwise evolves over time from bumbling manservant to wise and selfless friend. Time and again he makes sacrifices to aid Frodo, culminating in their final push into Mordor where Sam not only briefly bears the ring, saving it from the orcs who capture Frodo, but in the end literally carrying his master to the cracks of Mount Doom, thus enabling him to complete the quest. Samwise only ever wanted to be a simple gardener of the Shire, and his love of home and hearth are emphasised many times, as is his rustic and folksy wisdom. As a foil and a support for Frodo Baggins, he functions perfectly, though, and it's his very unlikeliness that adds drama to the story when he becomes, however briefly, the main focus of the drama, upon whose shoulders the quest rests. We think that Samuel Tarly, arguably written as a foil and support for Jon Snow, is not only a great example of the unlikely hero in A Song of Ice and Fire, but also a quite intentional nod to Tolkien's Sam. In A Game of Thrones, Jon Snow muses about his peculiar new friend, the fat boy who acknowledges his own cowardice. The world was full of cravens who pretended to be heroes. It took a queer sort of courage to admit to cowardice as Samuel Tarly had. But, as the elf lord Gildor tells Frodo in Fellowship of the Ring, courage is found in unlikely places. 
This comes after a discussion wishing the dangers of the wide world would stay outside the borders of the Shire forever. Gildor explains that one can't ever fence out evil completely before making his remarks about courage, which some think may foreshadow Sam's role in the fulfillment of the quest. In A Song of Ice and Fire, we see Samuel Tarley become Sam the Slayer when he's forced to leave the relative comfort of Castle Black on the Great Ranging. Then in A Feast for Crows, once again we see him sent into the wider world to Old Town, essentially with a quest or task to perform on behalf of his friend John. In Old Town, Sam may have to face the greatest of his fears, his abusive father who had rejected him and sent him to the Night's Watch in the first place, in order to achieve his goal. Having done so, when he returns to John's side, we think he may well be as instrumental in John's success as Samwise was to Frodo's, proving once again the truth not only of Tolkien's words about courage, but in story those of Ned Stark, the only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid. Honourable Hero Terminator 2 Brienne of Tarth Honourable heroes are those whose behaviour adheres to certain high standards of conduct that are recognised as virtuous. Such a character would undoubtedly protect the weak at all costs and are ready to sacrifice themselves without a second thought. This trait often manifests in them defending children, and so Child is a perfect sidekick for the honorable hero. Heroes of this type also like to fight fairly. They might not go in for the kill, for instance, if doing so compromises their morals, and they most certainly won't want to resort to any kind of dirty tactics like knifing someone in the back. And once the honorable hero sets off on a quest, they are not the sort to give up. Expect them to overcome whatever obstacles necessary in order to achieve their goal. This determination is as much to do with their mettle as it is their unbending sense of honour and duty. Finally and related, these heroes always keep to their word. If they make a promise, expect them to keep it, even if their integrity comes at a cost. There are many honorable heroes in pop culture, but we've chosen a curveball. In the movie The Terminator, the title character is an evil T-800 cyborg assassin sent back in time to kill Sarah Connor in order to stem future resistance against a robot uprising. However, in Terminator 2, a T-800 machine is reprogrammed and sent to protect Sarah's child, John, who has a heroic destiny. Portrayed by Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator is unstoppable in his role to guard and serve the young boy. Before long, he saved the child's life numerous times whilst listening to the boy's advice and modifying his behaviour. When the Terminator is about to make an unnecessary kill, John begs him not to kill anyone human. From that moment on, he adheres to this code. Finding himself in a gunfight with the authorities, the Terminator proceeds to shoot them all in the leg. His way of fighting fair. The Terminator is unflinching in his mission. The evil T-1000 machine almost destroys them in a foundry, but our cyborg hero never gives up. 
His dogged persistence saves the day, and when the evil robot is defeated, the Terminator has but one thing left to do. He sacrifices himself into the molten metal so no one can ever replicate his parts and kill John. Our honorable hero is keeping his promise of ridding the world of Terminator machines by committing altruistic suicide, and so his arc is complete. And we see an honourable hero in A Song of Ice and Fire in the character of Brienne of Tarth. Like the Terminator, Brienne embarks on a quest with a boy as her companion. She will protect Pod and other children at all costs. In A Feast for Crows, she attempts to defend orphans from despicable members of the Brave Companions, fighting on while she's outnumbered to her own detriment. The quest itself involves children Jamie Lannister has sent her to find and protect Arya and Sansa Stark, allowing her to fulfil an oath she made to Catelyn. This is a character bound by honour to the point she will never give up and always keeps her word. Brienne also likes to fight fairly. Her sense of honour comes from her knightly martial training, and she's perhaps in essence the most perfect knight in the story, defying convention with regard to her gender, which prevents her from being recognised officially. When she fights Jaime in A Storm of Swords, she wants to disarm him rather than kill him, implying both duty and chivalry. As with the Terminator, Brienne's prepared to fight fairly and, like the machine, will stop at nothing in the pursuit of goals which benefit others more than herself. Although she pays a heavy price for her dedication, such as having her face literally chewed while protecting those orphans, we hope she'll not ultimately have to sacrifice herself in order to complete her mission. Save that kind of tragedy for cyborgs. Sorcerer Gandalf Dumbledore Bloodraven Melisandre Sorcerer heroes are popular in fantasy where magic is a generic convention. These characters have magical powers that are revealed as the story goes on and have hidden knowledge that allows them to pull strings behind the scenes. They often act as guides for other characters, steering them through a world which they understand on a deeper level. Their magic is used to get themselves and others out of tight spots, and their overall wisdom can aid a heroic quest. We see sorcerer heroes in both Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter in the figures of Gandalf and Albus Dumbledore, respectively. Gandalf is the leader whose wisdom guides the members of the Fellowship even when he's absent, and his work off-page to uncover secrets and lore, to aid the success of the quest, or to bring salvation to the protagonists, is revealed time and again to have been invaluable. Likewise, Albus Dumbledore is portrayed as the wise leader whose knowledge guides Harry's journey from a downtrodden muggle-raised child to the rallying point of wizarding resistance against the Dark Lord. After his death, Dumbledore is revealed to have been pulling strings all along to ensure that Harry gets to the right place at the right time in order to finally defeat Voldemort. 
In A Song of Ice and Fire, when we think of a sorcerer with hidden knowledge who's pulling the strings behind the scenes, our minds might go immediately to the Three-Eyed Crow, revealed to be Brynden Bloodraven Rivers in A Dance with Dragons. And while we wouldn't be wrong in that assessment, we're looking for point-of-view characters here, and so we suggest that Melisandre of Ashai fills this role among characters whose internal POV we see. Melisandre, mother of shadow babies, is revealed to have legitimate magical powers and a long history in which she has gained knowledge that might be hidden from or lost to common men. She is almost certainly directing events towards a denouement that she claims she can see in her flames, and while she's shown to be repeatedly wrong in her interpretation, we can't deny that it is she who serves as the guide for Stannis's arc and who is positioned to at least try to fill that role for Jon Snow in the face of the other's invasion as well. Every man. Marty McFly. Davos Seaworth. An everyman hero in literature and pop culture is often from a low or average social class. They don't have the wealth of Tony Stark or the elite upbringing of Rob Stark, but they do have their street smarts. They're often designed to be relatable and appealing to the masses. In a lot of ways, they're simply ordinary people. But what they lack in riches, talent, and power, they make up for with honesty, sound moral judgment, and selflessness in the face of adversity. These qualities allow ordinary characters to achieve the extraordinary, becoming heroes along the way. And in the 1985 classic sci-fi film, Back to the Future, the main protagonist is the teenage Marty McFly. Marty is the embodiment of every man, a middle-class average kid who dreams of being a rock and roll musician, and whose father is less of a role model than an embarrassment. Bullied by the man who's now his boss since childhood, George McFly is an unfulfilled creative type and classic weakling. Through Marty's time travel adventures in the past, he's able to encourage his father to stand up for himself and reach for his dreams, leading to a vastly improved family life for the McFlys when everyman Marty returns to the present. In A Song of Ice and Fire, Davo Seaworth is our classic everyman point-of-view character. Prior to the events of the main narrative, Davos was raised from obscurity when the smuggler successfully ran the red wine blockade of Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion. Davos is loaded with the Westerosi equivalent of street smarts. He's common-born but honest and displays a practical, no-nonsense mindset that gets him named Stannis Baratheon's Hand. There is no more ordinary point-of-view character in the books, yet the very qualities that highlight Davos's ordinariness are the ones that ultimately lead to him becoming a central figure in one of the key arcs of the story. And now, to round things up, there are several other types of hero we'd like to mention quickly. 
We've talked a lot about prodigious heroes today, so no point in backtracking too much. But a prodigious hero is one we see being trained by a master who learns brilliant new skills before our eyes and then ultimately uses those skills to their advantage. Consider the bride from the Kill Bill movies, an assassin trained by her martial arts master, Pai Mei, who uses her skills to get her out of various tight spots and wreak her revenge, not dissimilar to the story of Arya Stark. Then there are superheroes. A Song of Ice and Fire might not feel like a superhero story, but perhaps when Bran completes his training, there might be some more resemblance. George, an avid comic book fan, has compared Bran to Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen, and the similarities to Professor X of the X-Men are pretty clear as well. With tragedy in his early story and supernatural powers that come to him at a cost, Bran might end up as a sort of mystical superhero. And finally, epic heroes come from humble origins and are the embodiment of their people. They are popular among their own culture to the point of being legendary, and so it highlights Beowulf from the old English poem of the same name, adapted into an animated film in 2007. While we're trying to stick to POV characters here, Mance Raider is actually a great fit for the epic hero archetype, displaying the qualities we mentioned as the chosen king who united the wildlings. Overall, there are numerous types of heroic archetypes and tropes in A Song of Ice and Fire, and George utilizes them to weave a story that offers many diverse characters who don't overlap too much. Many characters we mentioned could actually fit several of the archetypes. As usual in George's writing, it's not a one-for-one situation by any means, but we hope in this section we've outlined a number of the heroic categories that George might have been shooting for in the character designs of his point-of-view characters. George says all his characters are heroes of their own stories, and by seeing the world through their eyes, we can all live vicariously and experience the highs and lows, the defeats and dilemmas, and the glories and victories that different brands of heroes experience. Perhaps we all want to be heroes too. But in order for us to be heroes, we must remember that villainy is never too far away. As George once put it, In real life, the hardest aspect of the battle between good and evil is determining which is which. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed this episode all about the hero's journey in A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be back in the new year with another regular episode of Radio Westeros, and now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for writing such varied heroic characters, and to Kevin MacLeod and Kai Engel for allowing us to use their music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here too. Heartfelt thanks to Hortense of Ashai, Juna of House Aiko, Amber, Lenny, Sammy, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, 
Tim, B-Word, Fatima, Girl with No Name, Catherine, Jill, Lady Silverwing, Dean, Eileen, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Sasha, Alexis, Chris K, Marja the Mage, John H, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, Oxheart, Boss, Aero Lord Sosa, and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Christian, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Blythe Spirit, and Lady Diarliz of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Alex Engvild, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Javi, Christian, Lady of the Frostfangs, Charitable Rereadings, That Shiny Bastard, Richard, Camille, Virginie, Rachel, Eric, Hari Krishna, Sir Galahu of What, Matthew, Dutch, Defender of the Berm, Lizzie, PJ, Sin Bobby Joe, Clay, Monero Geek TV, Patrick, Scott, Goldie Juke, Clarissa, Ezra, Joseph, Kevin, Danielle, Dennis, Emma, Judson, Emily of the Erie, Jeffrey, Terry, Melissa, Maria, Ryan, Matthew, Nessie the Questing Beast, and the Knight of the Laughing Tree. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on iTunes, YouTube, or Spotify. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, email, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. I'm Sonia Pfeiffer, award-winning journalist and criminal defense attorney. I'm David Rudolph. I represented Michael Peterson in the murder trial that became the Netflix documentary, The Staircase. Abuse of Power is an original podcast that examines the impact of wrongful convictions. We will reveal the frightening ways in which innocent people can find themselves wrongfully convicted, imprisoned, and even executed. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, A-cast. 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 recommends.